Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Job Kind from Hübrecht Institute on this show. Jupp, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you did your PhD with Asif Akta at the EMBL in Heidelberg. You then moved on to do a postdoc in the group of Bas van Steensel at the Netherlands Kenster Institute in Amsterdam. And you are a group leader at the Hubrecht Institute since 2014, a professor by special appointment of single cell epigenomics at the Radboud University Nijmegen and on-code investigator. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yes, that's, uh, that's not a very easy one for me to address because many people have very specific examples when they encountered something in life and that, you know, they sparked an interest. But for me, it was more gradual. Like I, after I didn't do very well in high school, uh, so It took me a very long time to be in the position to to uh, to enter university in the first place. Uh, and then for me, the first challenge was to to see whether I was good enough uh, to um, to reach the uh, the university level. So I was really focused on that. Um, I didn't really know what to do, so I chose fairly randomly biology. Uh, and that was more because at the time. Uh, The, the brother of my girlfriend also did biology and I really liked him and he studied biology and I liked my teacher. So often, you know, you, you get inspired by your teacher uh, and then not so much by the topic, I think. If a teacher is really good, uh, any topic can be conveyed with a lot of interest. So in my case, that was my biology teacher. I really liked him and then I had the brother of my girlfriend. So It was a quite a random choice. I was also thinking of study languages, uh, literature. I was very much into reading, uh, like the, the the classic, the Russian classics, and uh, actually also uh, German literature, uh, which is one of the reasons I went to Heidelberg later. Actually, which is also a fairly random choice, I must say. Um, so I went to to study biology and uh, really ecology and the biodiversity evolution uh, because I I I, I really like uh, growing plants. I'm really into nature and uh, I like to take hikes in nature and and grow plants. I have tons of plants at home as well. So this was my primary interest. But then I studied general biology for two years. Um, but then I felt this was not really what I liked, uh, and this was sparked by very simply by uh, uh, reading. I had one class of us um, really molecular biology, uh, uh, and we had to read the the cell, you know, the textbook cell, um, and uh, and also biochemistry. And that really sparked my interest. So I was reading this for fun. So instead of uh, reading a novel before I went to sleep, I was reading this book. Um, so then I learned that maybe this was a direction that was more um, more close to my heart. Uh, and I, I repeated the second year of my university in uh, on molecular biology. Um, so I ventured into this. Then still, I wasn't super interested. I was I'm very broad in my interests. So I, I found it very hard to focus on something, which, of course, 
if you want to be a professional, especially in this direction, you need to be extremely focused. You know, it's like being an athlete, right? Sometimes this uh, analogy is made. Um, but I was still very, very broad. Um, and only when I started doing an internship, uh, I got really inspired. So then uh, I, I knew what I wanted to do. This was at the Netherlands Cancer Institute. Um, and I just really liked this hands-on doing experiments, thinking about experiments, uh, being creative in this way. So I learned also that uh, being a scientist is, is really a creative profession. So it's not only the arts, which, as I said, I was also interested in that direction, but you can also be very creative in, in biology. And uh, that really sparked my interest. And then I knew for the first time, actually, that this was what I wanted to do, but it took me a very long time. So there was nothing, I was not that I was a kid of 12 years and I encountered something, you know, with a magnifying class and I got very inspired by that. It's really, a, it has been a slow trajectory and that's, uh, in general, I, I take quite long always to find my my direction. I really need to to go in order to find my direction. Yeah. So, have you been aware of what it would take to to take on an academic career, and have you somehow regretted it since since you started? No, I've never regretted it. I'm I, I'm never really so aware of things. I I'm more um, you know I I just go. I don't. I'm not someone that. You know, nowadays, students really know everything. They know even already like the things that I encounter. But when I was a PhD student, I was really only focused on on the science and my experiments, and I wasn't really, uh, you know, busy uh, finding out what it involves to be uh, to be a PI. Or I didn't give it a lot of thought if this, uh, you know, what the next steps of my career should look like. I was really focused and having fun and, and, and doing experiments. And, um, but nowadays, for example, the students already know that, you know, when the graduation date, you know, the, 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 at, at, when they graduate, the clock starts ticking and they are already aware of ESC starting grants and things like that. And the deadline, you know, the time it takes for them. So they're much more aware, I think. I mean, nowadays, it sounds weird to say nowadays, I'm not that old, but, um, I think you know I I wasn't I wasn't uh, thinking about that a lot. I was just having uh, having a good time and doing my experiments. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, you cannot be motivated otherwise, I think, if it's uh, if it doesn't come from uh, from for having a good time and really enjoying what you do. Um so not, let's talk about the results uh, from you having fun in the lab. <laughs> um, yeah. the, your science uh, centers around single-cell epigenomics and gene regulation mediated by or on the nuclear lamina. Um, I want to start with your postdoc years with Bas van Steensel uh, because this is where your maybe your current research direction kind of started. The lab of Bas van Steensel developed a method called DAMID, which was used to identify lamina-associated domains, uh, short LADs. Um, you then worked on adapting this method to the single-cell space. Um, maybe to ease into this topic, could you maybe give a short introduction to DAMID and into lamina-associated domains? Yeah, so DAMID is, is a method which, uh, if you are interested to know where your protein uh, is localized on the chromatin or on the DNA, you can do similar to CHIP, where you use an antibody to pull down your protein of interest that's then associated with the, the DNA. It's bound to, with with DAMID, you express a fusion protein of your protein of interest fused to 
a uh, enzyme, which is called DAM. It's a DNA adenine methyltransferase. And you can see it as kind of a stamp. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a protein that's taken from bacteria. And as the name implies, it places a methyl group on the A, on the a position uh, on the DNA on a, within a GATC context. So it really stamps the DNA in the vicinity of where your protein sits uh, on the chromatin. So you have to express this in vivo, in living cells. Uh, and then after a certain time that you express your protein, you can simply isolate your geno genomic DNA, which is then stamped on the location. So basically, you create a blueprint on your DNA, the position where your protein sits, and you can amplify this specifically with uh, very standard uh, molecular biology steps. So restriction, digestion, li adapter ligation, and then amplification and, uh, and the creation of a alumina uh, in our case, an Illumina uh, sequencing library, which you can also do a third generation sequencing. There are some protocols now for doing that. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's DAMID. And DAMID has the advantages. It's, it's live in cells. So it's it, you create a blueprint on a DNA over a period of time. So it also has a bit of an... Uh, you, you're, you're laying down the print um, as cells develop, so you can also take advantage of this. It kind of creates also a historical profile on DNA, whereas a, ch a chip or chick or uh, a cotton tag, any of those, uh, you capture a snapshot of the, the state of a cell at that at that moment. Um, and of course, it doesn't uh, it doesn't rely on antibodies. So if there's no good antibodies for certain uh, epitopes, you can. You know, you can, you may, you want to use uh, DAMID for this, and it's very universal, right? You can um, use basically any protein for that. You can use any protein. So, oh yeah, so for so it works really well for, uh, for example, uh, mapping uh, lamina-associated domains. Uh, so at the time, uh, these domains couldn't really be mapped very well with uh, with chip, not because there's no good lamina antibody, because everybody uses that for loading controls and staining your the periphery of your uh, nucleus uh but because it's so packed into a heterochromatic uh, region so lats are uh, regions of the genome they're big domains that are localized in association with the nuclear lamina and they contain genes that are generally uh, lowly transcribed or repressed entirely and they uh they are demarcated by uh, by the classical uh, heterochromatin marks uh, k9 dye and trimethylation so these could not be very mapped very well with chip before because it's very diff difficult to pull these regions out. Uh, and then DAMID uh, really worked as a charm. Nowadays, chip also works fine. Um, so this can be used as well. So it's universal in that you can do many, many different chromatin types. But in general, uh, the active chromatin types is a bit more difficult because the DAM enzyme on itself has an intrinsic affinity for open chromatin regions. So if you fuse it to anything that like a transcription, an active transcription factor, you always need to accomplish an enrichment over the accessibility bias. So normally you uh, normalize over accessibility, um, but that could be an issue. So that, that there's ways around it. Um, but I would say that's one of the things that you need to you know take into account when you want to set up experiments using DAMID. But I feel that's that's the same for many enzyme-based methods, right? If you do cut and tag, you also need to be mindful of an ataxic like a pseudo pattern or something like that. So, absolutely, uh, yeah, 
So um, I remember <laughs> when I think back of our relationship, I mean, you, you probably don't remember, but uh, you gave a talk in Regensburg, like in, I think, 2013 or something like that. And there you showed your first single cell data. And it was yeah. really uh, it was really interesting to see how those population-based data um, are somehow also created by single cell experiments. Um, so what did you learn from um, doing single cell experiments in terms of LUTs and uh, gene regulation? Yeah, so we... So first, so first we actually developed um, uh, a microscopy version of, of DAMID. Uh, maybe I can go to that first because in time we developed that first and also the observations we made with that were, um, were not necessarily the, the reason that we started doing single cell DAMID, but they, they followed very naturally from this. Um, so we developed a version uh, of DAMID. Of course, I said that DAMID uh, leaves this print on the DNA at the position where your protein locates. In case if you if you express a fusion of DAM to lamina one, you will mark all the chromatin associates with the nuclear lamina, so at the nuclear periphery. And then you can use we made we took advantage of this print on the DNA, and we we looked for a protein that would specifically bind to this epigenetic modification on the DNA, which is unique in IRE eukaryotes. It doesn't exist. Um, and my, you know, in the end, it's it's the, the it's logical that we came up with this protein. But we, in the end, we used the restriction enzyme, part of the restriction enzyme that we used to cut the methylated GATCs. Uh, that we found that binds specifically to this region. So uh, we found one part of this protein to uh, to be the, the reader domain. And then if you fuse that to, to a fluorescent protein like GFP and express that in the cell together with DAM lambda B1, you can nicely visualize uh, protein DNA interactions as they occur in a living cell. Um, so that's 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 quite quite nice, but the really the um uh, the most special part of, of this technology is that because DAM lambda B1 is a print on the DNA that's not removed, there's also no endogenous machinery within the cell that can remove this mark. You can track this over pro prolonged periods of time. So you can ask the question, if you mark uh, LADS in G2 of the cell cycle, uh, what are these, uh, is the spatial genome positioning uh, of a cell is that faithfully inherited through mitosis to the daughter cells. So in other words, it's what at the, what's localized at the periphery in one cell, in let's say in the mother cell, is that faithfully inherited to the daughter cells? And um, that was a question really, it was addressed a bit by fish, but we had now really a method with which we could address this, address this systematically for all regions that were positioned at the periphery. So we simply tracked, we laid down these patterns in the in the mother cell, and then we tracked these regions over mitosis to the daughter cells. And, and what we found there it, in an isogenic uh, cell line, and we this is consistent for all cell lines we looked at so far, and also in vivo uh, system, is that uh, there's a lot of variability. So we this there's the regions that were at the lamina in the mother cell, they often end up at other places uh, in the nucleus. Um, uh, in the daughter cells and specifically also around these uh, uh, nucleolar, uh, on the nucleolus, which is some things that were also found in, uh, in Regensburg, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so this, so this, these, uh, these, uh, these gnats. 
Um, so this was this was the first time that we really showed that there's this extensive variability in uh, spatial genome positioning. And because we know these regions are at the lamina, they are repressive. They, these genes are silent. Um, it makes you wonder how you know how important these interactions are with the nuclear lamina for these genes to to stay silent. You know what is the how, why why does the cell have this extensive variability? Um, why do you not? Why is there no mechanism to faithfully position everything at the nuclear periphery at any time, uh, especially in in what is assumed a homogeneous cell population? So this was an observation we made. Uh, this is by microscopy, but then we wanted to really also identify all the regions uh, that uh, have this variability and ask questions like: Is are all regions variable, or is there differences? Are the regions that always go faithfully back to the nuclear lamina after mitosis, and are there regions that show a more variable pattern? Another question we had, is it the entire lamina-associated domain that comes off the nuclear periphery after mitosis, or do you see kind of different um, uh, like uh, patterns on, on this theme? So you have half of the domain uh, still associated with the periphery, uh, or maybe uh, only the anchors or something. So these type of questions we could only address by, by genomics. And, and then we were in a unique position that with DAMID, it doesn't involve any almost any tissue handling. You lay down these print in vivo, so the print is already there at the time that you harvest the cells. So the only thing you need to do is amplify specifically the material, the DNA that has the, the methyl mark on it. So that just involves capturing the cell and deposit the cell into some kind of a container. And nowadays we do it in 384 well plates uh, and do a few molecular biology steps, as, as I said earlier. Um, so this is other, uh, you know, chip was, of course, you need to, at the time, especially you had to do all the, uh, you know, you had to do with pull downs and you lose a lot of material in the process. Here we don't lose any material because we just drop the cell in a, in a container and we do the amplifications uh on top of each other so you also never really pipe it you never touch the sample anymore so you don't lose any material so so this we realized that DAMID could actually work because there's no other techniques at the time where you could do single cell work um and this worked actually really well at, at the first go um and amazingly it worked on microarrays so at the time we were still <laughs> you not imagine that but we were doing this on microarrays um, so sequencing was around already. Uh, I mean, really, the, with Bradley Bernstein in 2008, like the, the really the chip chip seek methods, uh, they were there already. This was in I'm talking 2012 now, uh, like 2012 2013 when we saw this for the first time to work. But we were hybridizing this. We're really labeling this with sci five and sci three, and then uh, labeling this uh, uh, this DNA and um, and hybridizing to the array. But already there, we saw single cell lab profiles that looked like population profiles, but th they had a lot of variability. Um, uh, so then, uh, yeah, then we, of course, uh, sequenced the, the data after that, and uh, we could very nicely um, detect variability and really, um, for every region, determine how frequent the region was at the nuclear periphery uh, and we found that it was a range from the regions that were always at the periphery to, to regions that uh, were only very infrequently in touch with the periphery. Um, so, yeah, so that's how we came to, to develop this. Uh, and, and afterwards, of course, we developed it for other methods, other uh, 
chromatin types, uh, not only for DEMLAM and B1. Does the uh, the rate at which such a locus uh, associated associates with the nuclear lamina correlate somehow to the transcriptional status it has? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, so it correlates with the, we found a few principles. Uh, one principle is that the bigger the domain, uh, the more frequently it's associated with the nuclear lamina. Uh, also, we found uh, that the higher the AT content of a lot, the more frequently it associates with the nuclear lamina. Uh, and uh, these regions generally have a low gene density, um, and they contain frequently genes that are not transcribed. So they, that's all these like olfactory receptor genes, you know, these genes that are only uh, transcribed in your nose, uh, and only uh, I think one of them. Um, or a few of them. Um, and so these are generally in those regions that never come off the nuclear periphery. And these are also what we uh, previously characterized as constitutive LADs, in that if you do a lot of profiling uh, of LADs across different cell types, you find certain regions to be always associated with the nuclear periphery. And those regions we call constitutive LADs. And these are also in single cell studies These are the regions that you more frequently find associated with the nuclear periphery, which in a way makes sense because these regions contain genes that in almost no other, you know, in almost no lineage, these genes need to be activated. So why would you uh, expose these genes to potentially to transcription factors that can activate those genes? So they are kind of, I see that as they are kind of safely stored away at the periphery, like you store You know, things that you don't use very frequently in your house, you put them somewhere at the place where they're very difficult to access, <laughs> right? On your, your cupboard or something where very far away in the back. Um, so this is this is what we see. One other rule that we saw is that if if a lad is neighbored, if a big lad is neighbored by another lad, um, they also, you see kind of cooperativity in, in binding. So they are more likely to be associated with the periphery if their neighbors are also lat. And that also accounts to chromosomes. So chromosomes that have, uh, like chromosome 18 in human cells generally has a very high lat content. Um, and that entire chromosome you always also find very frequently at the nuclear periphery, whereas chromosome 19 Uh, has only a few lads. It's very gene-rich as well. Uh, you find that more in the nuclear interior, but also the lads that are on chromosome 19, there are a few, uh, you find them very infrequently associated with the nuclear periphery, which is which ties in very well with uh, work with the on-DNA fish, for example, from Wendy Bigmore's group, where they already saw that this, right? And the, and the Kramer groups that where you see this really this Uh, this uh, preferential um, chromosome territories, chromosome 19, you almost always find in the middle of cells, where, uh, where whereas 918 is uh, associated with the nuclear periphery. Hey, you already mentioned the chromosome territories, and next to the lamina-associated domains, there are other domains that are characterized um, uh, in the last 10 years. There's topologically associated domains. You already mentioned the nucleolus-associated domains. So how do they compare? Um, are LADs overlapping with, for example, the TADs? And uh, yeah, there are like in TADs, are, I guess, A compartment and B compartment, so active compartment and inactive compartments. How do they compare and overlap? Yeah, so uh, so first the LADs with NADs, 
so the the regions of the genome that are kind of uh, associated with the nucleolus, it's has been a bit difficult to directly compare them because uh, them them ID didn't. We tried very hard, and um, uh, them ID doesn't really work so well for uh, to characterize uh, nucleolar associated domains. So this has been done in different ways, more mostly by. Well, yeah. By a lot by by biochemical by, by purifications of the nucleolus, and then you take along the DNA that's associated with it. And now there's um, from the Santoro lab, they have developed them idea. I haven't really looked into the cross comparison, but my feeling is that most of the labs that come off the nuclear periphery, for example, after mitosis, and you find them associated with the nucleolus, I think most of the labs. Uh, uh, correspond to NADs as well. So any lab that is variable will at some point be associated with the nucleolus, but I have no proof for that. So that's just, um, there. it's very possible that there are regions that uh, never uh, visit, let's say, the, uh, the nucleolus, uh, but it's also logical, right? Because these are regions that you want to keep in a repressed state and the nucleo nucleolus provides another like platform for DNA to be uh, organized on on top on top of or onto like a scaffold uh so if you're not at the lamina you may want to be around the nucleolus which is also a, a heterochromatic environment in terms of um genome topology of course lats are, are b compartments um and uh they contain tats as as any you know and the whole genome is organized in tats um and you have multiple, so in terms of dimensions, you have general multiple TATs uh, within one LAT. And, and uh, LATs are generally of the same dimensions as compartments. Um, it's in terms of interrelationships between the two, this is still uh, not entirely clear to me uh, if it's, if uh, like say a loop extrusion is also involved in in the organization of LATs, or that you need scaffolding of genomic regions to the nuclear lamina to organize your heterochromatin, um, there are of course examples like in the rod cells. You have the very interesting inversion of the genome organization where you normally have heterochromatin at the nuclear lamina and euchromatin in the middle of a cell. Here it's inverted, uh, but you still have uh, tats and compartments and B A and B compartments as as normal. So that this would this would argue against the scaffolding to be important for for this organization. But we've also observed, for example, in uh, we did a study together with uh, Maria Le Maria Elena Torres Badia, where uh, we looked at lad organization uh, in. Um, just after uh, in oocytes and, and, and zygotes and the first cleavage stages. And there we found that in the zygote, we have a very clear LADS, especially on the paternal genome. Um, they're actually really, I mentioned the constitutive LADS before. So those regions that you find always associated with the lamina uh, across different cell types in zygotes, it's almost exclusively the constitutive last that you find associated with the nuclear periphery. And uh, the zygotes, of course, is a special case because especially on the paternal genome, the, it lacks most of the histone modifications because they need to be reestablished after the move of the protomines and the replacement with the normal canonical histones. Um, but it also doesn't have 
uh, any tats or not at least it doesn't have any detectable tats and it has a very weak compartment so there we have the situation where you do see the formation of lats in their you know in their uh, full glory uh but in the absence of that so there this argues that you can form lats independently of uh, of tats and compartments and we've also seen that if you if you um, go to two cell and eight cell stage that you see changes in a and b compartments and you see changes in lat positioning and there we've seen for example that at the two cell stage uh, for 10% of the genome, we see a change in lab positioning, so regions that go to the lamina, but only at later cleavage stages, you see a switch of those regions from A to B compartments, which argues, at least there, for this subset of regions that scaffolding, as, if I can call it like that, at the nuclear lamina precedes switching uh, in compartments. So. But it could be very well. I mean, pre-implantation development is kind of a unique, I think, a unique stage in general. So whether this is uh, something you can, uh, it's a general rule or it's an exception, I cannot say. Manipulations of, well, of course, you can manipulate TATs and you can, man, I mean, you can manipulate LATs, although the latter is a little bit more difficult, I find, um, by doing depletions of, uh, of RAT21, for example, uh, with these very nice DTAC, uh, like Elvash and Nora developed these is very nice, uh, deep, you know, the depletions, for example. Um, and uh, but there is a bit, I find it a bit hard to to interpret the data. So it's not black and white. So you see changes if you if you play with the, with the, with the tads, um, with loop extrusion, you you start to see some differences in lats but they're definitely not gone so they are still there there's some more mixing of compartments but it's not uh black and white and you see differences also between different species so uh, i think there's some room there to, uh, to to find out what is really going on what the interdependencies are between these and i think in general the you know we've always of course focused for a long time on everybody had his own favorite chromatin type and this is what we studied we studied lats other people studied polycomp and uh, or people studied their favorite uh, chromatin complex but really these the interdependencies between all these layers is uh, is what we need to unravel in the in the next decade i think which of course people are, are working on this right now uh but yeah there's a lot of um, there's a lot to discover there i think you already mentioned the, the epigenetics of it all, and you also tried to move DAMID into kind of the epigenetic space. And the first step, I think, was to use DAMID as a readout for transcription. Um, can you maybe talk about uh, the approach you took there? Uh, to combine it with transcription, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, well, we saw, of course, that there was this extensive variability in lab positioning in, in, in different cell types, um, in ES cells also, in, in, uh, in different uh, cancer cell lines. Uh, but we didn't know what the effect was uh, of this repositioning of LATs uh, between individual cells. So uh, there we were measuring, all, all, of course, only one modality. Um, so we really wanted to to, to include uh, transcription there and also histone modifications, which, which is something we can do now as well in addition. So, um, yeah, there we combine DAMID with, uh, with CellSeq, CellSeq2, um, 
which was a more pragmatic choice because this is a technology that we had available at the time in the, in the institute as well. Um, and because the MID doesn't involve any tissue handling, this this was rather straightforward. I, I mean, nothing is straightforward. And probably the people who worked on this are, if they hear this, they're like, what's straightforward? <laughs> this was not straightforward at all. But in a way, it is straightforward in that it all involves enzymatic reactions, right? So we deposit cells after you lay down the DEMID print into a container. And uh, now instead of doing DEMID first, we, we preserve the, um, the mRNA first. So uh, as soon as you deposit these the cells in the container, we, we perform um, uh, cDNA uh, synthesis and second strand synthesis uh, such that the mRNA is preserved. And then you use also barcoding or well uh, barcoding strategies such that you can assign every mRNA to the the DEMID in the corresponding uh, sequence in the corresponding well, um, and they um, and then we can do a joint. We design it such that we can do a joint amplification by a linear amplification uh, with T7 RNA polymerase of the mRNA product uh, as well as the DEMID product, and and luckily they are present in quite a similar ratio in general, depending on the cell type you're looking at. Um, so we didn't have to tweak that too much as well, because you can imagine that uh, with some of the methods, with DEMID, you get very rich uh, information. So you get up to 100,000 unique fragments per cell. Uh, I mean, there are other methods, most other methods, single cell methods, you obtain, let's say, between 1,000 and 10,000 unique fragments per cell. Um, then the mRNA can be very overwhelming. So you may want to kind of handicap the mRNA amplification in favor of your genomic amplification. But that was not the case. So we obtained both measurements from the same cell. Um, and that's now what we use. We did find some variability to be associated. So variability in spatial genome positioning to be associated with uh, changes in, in gene expression. But it's very minor, so it's uh, the effect size is very small. Um, we do find it consistently for different cells, um, but yeah, it's not uh, and it's not very uh, very um, pronounced. Potentially, because lads when they come off the nuclear lamina after mitosis, they associate with the nucleolus, so they are silenced in a different way. Um, yeah, but yeah, we did we did find some things, but uh, of course, uh, having the transcription is is very um, very beneficial for other reasons as well. For example, uh, to if you're looking into complex tissues uh, like the like the embryo, for example, or like when you have a tumor mass that is of course very heterogeneous. Uh, now we can use the transcriptomics to identify the different cell types that are present in the uh, in the tumor material or in the embryo, uh, and assign DEMID profiles to each uh, each cellular identity. So you basically use it to classify your cells, and then we have the underlying uh, epigenetic profiles of these uh, cells. And that's of course what people also do nowadays. But at the time, we were the first uh, to do this. So yeah. we. Uh, yeah, so um, I was in the lucky position that I was, you know, doing the MID and being the first to map protein DNA interactions. We were at the forefront of this of this revolution, and uh, now we're pretty much in the, in the middle uh, in the middle of it. So, uh, of course, lots of lots of labs. Uh, 
caught up and uh, we have to see how we're going to reposition ourselves in the next uh, five years, I think. Yeah. Maybe we can come to this in a minute, but uh, I just want to finally talk about um, the last paper, which came out in 2022, so last year. And there you extended the DEM-ID method into finally fully into the epigenetic space. Uh, consequently, the method was called uh, EpidemID. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how does this method make it possible to target epigenetic modifications? Yeah. So, with with them ID, if you go to Wikipedia, I don't know if that's changed by now. I also don't know who wrote that. Maybe it was Boss, but uh, <laughs> it says that uh, with them ID, this there's many advances of doing them ID, but the disadvantage is that you cannot map uh, post-translational modifications such as histone modifications. Um, And that is because, of course, you need to express a fusion protein in the cell. So you, you typically express them fused to a protein like lemon B1 or uh, or transcription factor or anything else. Uh, and of course, then you cannot map uh, histone modifications in that way because classically people use antibodies to uh, like in chip to map uh, histone modifications. Um, so we found we found a way around that uh, when. Um, Uh, Hiroshi Kimura, uh, we found a paper by Hiroshi Kimura in 2013 where he presented these very nice, uh, what he calls mint bodies. These are these single chain antibodies. So they're comprised of the, the variable, the variable having the variable light chain. So the epitope recognition domains fused together with a flexible linker. And he knows the sequence of these uh, regions. Uh, so you can genetically encode your single chain antibody. And then, of course, we can fuse that to, to the DEM enzyme. So uh, while I was still a postdoc, so this is how long it took, actually, to develop this, uh, I contacted uh, Hiroshi and um, he agreed to share these constructs uh, with uh, with me. Uh, and then uh, he can express these, uh, these mint bodies uh, fused to DEM in cells. Um, there are several of them. And of course, I rely on the ones that he develops. Um, Uh, but then that in the end that works works really well. So we we mapped, uh, for example, K27 trimethylation with this. Uh, you can map active histone modifications with the side note that I made earlier that it's it's a little hard a little harder to map uh, accessible regions with them ID. Uh, and then the other approach, of course, which was obvious actually now that you think of it, is to use uh, read the natural occurring reader domains. So those domains that uh, recognize naturally uh, histone modifications. Of course, you have many, you have basically all of them. Uh, so we took also, um, for example, the chromo domains of CBX7. So that's uh, the domain that recognizes specifically K27 trimethylation. And we, um, we, combined, we combined three of them in tandem, fused to them, and also that specifically uh, localizes the DEM enzyme to K27 trimethyl domains um, and in that way, we can specifically map histone modifications uh, with with transcriptomics because it's the same the same technology that I explained earlier. Uh, so in this way, we have quite a large set of uh, of histone uh, marks that we can map uh, together with transcriptomics. And I think the the nice thing is that it can in this way you can use the entire let's say tool set of them id so them id i mentioned earlier earlier the microscopy version so uh, if you have this fusion established into your cells you can with the methyl tracer so this is the microscopy version of them id you can also track cells live so track histone modifications live and see how they change over time 
maybe after a division, but maybe after a stimulus or an asymmetric cell division, for example. Uh, you can do proteomics with DAMID. Uh, so you can fuse, uh, you know, BRA or one of the, you know, the, the APEX or any of those um, uh, nice bio-D versions um, to, to your protein of interest or to the, also the methyl tracer and, and mark, uh, do proteomics with this. Uh, and there are some, as I said, third generation uh, options now as well to to um, to have to use as a readout for DAMID. So it, it's a very nice compre comprehensive tool set, I think, that that can be used. Um, and this works in we've done this in ESLs as a proof concept. We did this in zebrafish as well, um, which works very nicely. Now I love zebrafish now because it's <laughs> it develops very quickly. I mean, with the, the to go from from a fertilized egg to a full body plant takes as, as almost as long as going from a fertilized oocyte in mouse to the two cell stage. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> as a developmental, you know, I, I don't call my I don't dare to call myself yet a developmental biologist, but do, as a lab that does a lot of developmental work, um, that is very appealing model. Uh, and it also works, so we also use it now in pre-implantation development. There's a paper on BioArchive where you can look at that. Um, and that works uh, works really well as well. So you get very quite high quality single cell profiles uh, with these marks and transcriptomics. Yeah. So what it is, what is it what you're working on right now? Is it more like extending and working on optimizing the methods more or finally taking all this, what you developed in the last 10 years and applying it to the questions you're interested in? Yeah, so this is exactly the the difficult interface where we are now. I think, you know, as as a, I think as a PI, you go probably go through three phases. That is setting up your lab, um, so you need to establish everything from scratch. Uh, you have to acquire funding. You have to hire people. You have to establish your research plan. But your research plan is really mostly a follow up, normally from what you've done in your postdoc, right? So that's why also how you got the position. Then, uh, then is the consolidation or like the the next phase is uh, when so where we are now after like nine years after I started the group, uh, you're at the phase where uh, the research went well, uh, but people are leaving the lab, so you need to um, you go through the transitioning. So you need to all the intellectual property that is now in the group. You need to make sure that you maintain that. Um, and you need to kind of rethink your your research program, right? So as I said, we were at the front forefront of of single cell uh, genomics, epigenomics, um, and that was a natural uh, thing to follow up on, obviously. Um, but now there's you know half the world is doing this. So what is our added advantage? You know why are we still special in doing this, and and what can we do that other people cannot do? Um, so we're really, you know, trying to to think about that. I really love technology development. Uh, I think this is what I said really in the beginning is I really like biology because it's so creative. Um, you can be creative in thinking of very uh, good experiments, uh, but you can also be creative in developing technologies, and that's happened what I what I like best. I think, to, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, and so we'll continue doing that. But I think uh, in terms of technology development, we'll work more towards integrating different layers of information, not necessarily multiple layers of histone modification. It's something we developed. So it's, this is also on BioArchive where we can map uh, six histone modifications in single cells and um, 
this there's no reason to extend it this further to 20 or 30 uh, and it's just how many antibodies you add to a cell uh, but i really also would like to add that to different measurements so really you know there's some papers now also that measure across the dogma of biology right so to really incorporate, start incorporating uh, cellular signaling with epigenetics um, and uh, also live cell imaging with, uh, so first being able to do live cell imaging uh, and then capture cells based on certain phenotypes that they display uh, under the microscope and capture those cells then for downstream sequencing and see what makes these cells that they behave such and such. So. Um, I think that in terms of, of, of technologies, um, that's where we where we want to go. And I want to go more. So we'll leave really the, um, the 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 cell culture systems and go really in, in vivo. So we're we'll be focusing more on uh, pre implantation development. Uh, this so fish using more also uh, mutant backgrounds. Um, you know, I think we we have these technologies in now, and, and as you say, we really want to start implementing those technologies to really go in depth into biology instead of keeping developing new technologies all the time and um, you know asking the same questions, but then with a new technology. So I I think for the next ten years, this is what we focus on more. And um, in addition, I'm part of the Oncode Institute, as you said. This is this. Super nice uh, initiative in the Netherlands that now just went into its second phase. It's uh, it's a virtual oncology institute. So it, um, there's uh, PIs that are based in different institutes and universities in the Netherlands. Uh, they are part of Oncode, and it also has a quite a, a big supportive team that, uh, for example, help with the business development. Um, um, but also uh, really to create a collaborative atmosphere and uh, initiatives between the different PIs. So one thing I also uh, really want to start focusing on in the next 10 years is to uh, use our technologies more for uh, doing two things, uh, understanding the role of epigenetics in, uh, in cancer, which is, of course, extremely broad, but uh, we'll... We'll team up with uh, with one of the PIs, which we already initiated to to look really from um, the initiation of cancer towards metastasis, towards uh, like recurrence of uh, of uh, of cancer after treatment. Uh, and the second part that I would really like to focus on, which we start, is diagnostics. So uh, use uh, you have the cell-free DNA into in your different you know liquid. Uh, so, in the, for example, in the blood, uh, which is uh, DNA that comes from cells that went through apoptosis, this can be natural, your, your liver cells in a healthy individual, uh, but also tumor cells shed, up, shed off a lot of uh, cell-free DNA, uh, which you can find in your, um, in your blood. Um, it's a very hot topic. I mean, many people are working on this. And um, like Nir Friedman showed very nicely that uh, these uh, the selfie DNA is often also still present in nucleosomes with their histone modification still on it. So, of course, this is kind of a treasure trove of uh, information where instead of looking for this one p53 mutation in this uh, selfie DNA, uh, if every almost every piece of selfie DNA has a trace in terms of histone modification of the cell of origin where it came from. 
we can use this information to determine uh, the status of a patient, uh, maybe at the at, you know in a in a in a screen type of um, setup, but maybe also after treatment. So see when the recur when there's recurrence of the of the of the cancer at that early stage, and it would be a very it's of course a very non-invasive way to look into these things. So. I find it very a lot of fun and also rewarding to to use now our uh, our expertise that we acquired over let's say a decade to to work more towards developing such uh, strategies and especially uh, also as being part of this uh, Uncode Institute. This is the ideal uh, position I think to start developing this. So in the last almost 50 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, can you maybe give a short summary of your maybe most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, no, I think you, you, you captured everything quite well. Yeah, so we, we went from developing the first technologies to, to map uh, single-cell offense uh, with genomics. Um, And, uh, and then started developing uh, also biological systems in the group to, to implement these technologies in. I think one of the, the key findings we had is to map spatial genome positioning and pre-implantation development, which is something that, uh, that we discussed. I think one thing that we didn't touch upon so much is that we found that lamin-associated domains are one of the first to be established in, uh, in life. Which, which, you know, that they are established before, as I said, before, before TADs are established, before compartments are established, but also before the initiation of transcription. So I think... Uh, yeah, you need, to make, you need to make sure that the right things are transcribed, right? And keep everything away that you don't want to be transcribed. Probably, yeah. I'm also always careful to interpret things <laughs> without having proof for it, but... Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense in a way. Uh, you first, you know, you provide the scaffold and then you organize the rest. Um, so I think, yeah, so that that was uh, an interesting finding, I think. Um, and um, yeah, I think, you know, I think we captured things <laughs> quite well. Uh, we were following up on that. Yeah. So thank you, Joop, for your time and for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.